This is the Makerspace Managers Podcast, Episode 4. I'm your host, Will Bradley, and today we're following up with Rachel Stanfield and Matt Bowden from the Cedars Union in Dallas, Texas. In the last episode, we talked to them in the thick of the COVID pandemic in July 2020, and now we're talking to them in July 2021, which we hope was the end of the pandemic, but obviously those of you listening in August 2022 know that eh, it's not quite the case. So, yeah, uh, today is June 30th, 2021, and uh, the last time we talked was almost a full year ago on July 17th, 2020. Uh, So what's changed? How have you guys been doing? How did you survive this pandemic? What's new in your world? Well, um, yeah, it's pretty crazy. That's been almost exactly a year. (laughs) Right. Um, It's strange how, like, the, the past year is really compressed. Um, it does. It definitely doesn't feel like it's been that long since we last talked. Yeah, um, maybe six months, right? But yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I totally failed to get on top of the editing game and was dealing with other stuff, and and here we are, so we can, yeah, we can catch up a little bit. But I guess uh, first, we're we're still here. I'm talking yeah, yeah. to you from the same room in our space that's still operating. Oh, um, that's good. <laughs> which. Uh, I mean, sadly, is kind of a reality of this pandemic is that a lot of nonprofits and a lot of makerspaces haven't made it through. Right. Um, so on a positive, that's a, a great thing that we've managed to do. Um, yeah. Yeah. We could pat ourselves on the back that we we all uh, made it through, uh, even if some people weren't, a, weren't so lucky. That's right. And uh, we have we have worked a little bit. Um, with one organization in particular that had some tough times um, and we've been trying to help them out. So we're still trying to look out for other people in the community and help out when we can, um, or at the very least give their members another spot to drop into. Well, that's great. Yeah. So um, when we last talked, you were thinking that uh, the big uh, strategy would be kind of um, maybe branching out to running events on the roof of your big new space and maybe, I don't know what you're planning on doing with your annex first space. Um, but it sounds like you're saying that uh, you've managed to do some outreach and help out others who might not be so fortunate. Yeah, I guess our, our biggest focus has really been switching our in-person programming over to online. Mm. And um, that's, so, I mean, yeah, we had all these huge plans for like uh, drive through events and like parking lot movie and art events. And, Sounds so uh, good on paper. Yeah, trying to do like live performance, but separated from people. Um, that never really worked out. Um, sure, sure. So, a lot <laughs> of that stuff, I, yeah. It just, you know, it just got worse. And I think people were more afraid to even do anything really you know but but we did um yeah we did look at car events but i think ultimately we just i don't even remember i think we were overwhelmed with that sounds like my story i was going to interject but i I was going to let you finish and and fill in that phrase yeah like what overwhelmed with like what was the right thing to do for people um and would people come and like questioning ourselves a lot. Um, and for me, um, it was very like, or the, the, the group that I was with, sure, maybe you're home or maybe you're uh, laid off and, and, you know, collecting unemployment, or maybe you're supposedly taking it easy. But in reality, you're surviving a disaster and everybody's stressed out. And sometimes you just need to chill out on the couch and browse Facebook. Like, I yeah. think there was a lot of overwhelmed feeling where, sure, we could do a giant drive-in movie theater thing, but like, who wants to do that next Friday? I don't want to do anything next Friday. I want to chill the heck out, you know? Right. right. So yeah, like I said, we um, we found that instead of trying to stick with doing these uh, distance events, we just like really turned and focused on 
online content. Gotcha. Um, and it actually worked out really well for us. We've had more people coming to our, our Zoom and YouTube live and uh, that kind of content online than we ever had in person, which is um, interesting, at least for me, uh, a little bit frustrating. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we, have, we have this great and awesome space, but we've been able to sort of expand our programming reach uh, more just doing it digitally. But I think it's also just because people were just like, desperate for content. And like you said, a lot of people just wanted to stay home and uh, tuning in to like uh, an art program that they can just watch or come back to when they have time. Uh, I think it worked out really well for us, like when we did that change. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So um, on that note, uh, yeah, obviously a lot of people didn't know what Zoom was before March 2020 and then suddenly everybody did and everybody's trying mm -hmm. everything related to that. Um, did, was that turning out to be a uh, moneymaker thing for you where you would either like charge people for that or they would be attracted to come and and give you money in other ways as kind of like an advertising thing? Or was it purely like a, we're creative people, we want to put something out in the world, here you go. And, and it hasn't necessarily maybe made money, but it's, um, you know. I can, I can speak to that. Um, yeah. Yeah, a lot of the ones that we did and the ones that we kind of do in person are not necessarily moneymakers. I mean, being online, we decided to do most of it free. Um, but those type of programs that we had in person before were pay what you can. Um, so a lot of times we get people giving $5, you know, to come in the door. Um, so it really was more about reach. Um and hopefully turning those people into members or, you know, donors and things like that in the long run. Um, however, we did toward, uh, you know, halfway through the pandemic, our programs manager, Adrian, um, came up with uh, basically these virtual workshops where we would have our studio artist teach people on the screen how to paint clouds <clears throat> or how to how to paint uh, the Dallas skyline and things like that. And those were paid. Um, they were like, I believe, $15, $20 a ticket. Oh, great. Uh, and we are big on making sure we pay our artists members a fair wage in, in doing that too. So in reality, we didn't, you know, make a whole lot of money on them after paying the artists too. But yeah. I personally, I find them that they were successful because people did tune in and um, we got a lot of good feedback that, you know, if people were able to be creative still through the screen. Now I think it's a different story. I mean, I think a lot of people are kind of over, over the zoom thing, <laughs> ready to sure. get back. But, but we're still, that's another topic is we're still figuring out, you know, how do we do hybrid or do we do um, just in person again? And how do we, how do we adjust again? <laughs> right. That's definitely the topic of 2020, I think is, uh, uh, you know, we're over the, the panic and we're over the, the long wait for the vaccine. And now we're like, do we open? How much do we open? What do we do with the various guidance in front of us and comfort levels and stuff? Mm -hmm. um, yeah. So I, I think we talked about this in the, in the previous podcast, but we were completely closed for two months at the beginning. Yeah. Um, and then we sort of did this stepped, um, just sort of following the, the general guidelines here in Dallas um, and from the CDC to, to slowly reopen um, with, of course, our focus being on trying to keep the, the full cohort healthy and keep the staff um, healthy. Um, and that worked out great. Um, we tried to stay uh, pretty conservative with that um, mm -hmm. and move slower than some people were. Um, yeah. But our artists seem to appreciate that. And so, um, yeah, we're, we're just now sort of starting to come back and doing stuff in person again. Um, but still at sort of a much smaller scale than we used to. Yeah. Uh, so I want to hear about um, your cohort because uh, getting through it and, and lessons learned and stuff is um, a big thing that's on my mind. But before I ask about that, um, I was going to ask what 
sorts of comfort level with kind of like vaccination status or, or reopening? Like, what are you finding as you go through that process? Uh, for, for me, I mean, it's been a, you know, like Matt said, kind of a, we've been more on the conservative side, I feel like. Um, but just Monday, uh, we decided that we would make masks optional for vaccinated folks, um, mm-hmm. which was kind of a big deal to our members and um, sent out the email and got only positive responses back. Uh, everyone was excited. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, it is somewhat of a risk. Like at, at first when we reevaluated we, we decided, no, let's kind of stay the course. Let's keep the masks on. Um, and then just, you know, a couple months or six weeks or so have gone by. And um, it's odd. We're just kind of watching what other places are doing, you know, understanding that we're different than a grocery store or a place that has like a really high level of mm-hmm. different people coming in. So, so I made that decision recently, but uh, for instance, I had a tour yesterday where I let them know, hey, we just changed our policy that the masks are optional. And um, it was a group of three and had one person that said, I'm going to keep my mask on, um, but thank you. And then yeah. that resulted in everyone else putting their masks on, you know. So I mm-hmm. think there's still a lot of that where you're feeling out depending on who you're talking to or who you're with, like feeling out the comfort comfort levels. Yeah. And so that's kind of how I've approached it so far. Um, But it does make it tricky. I think when you're, especially as we start to do more uh, group things, which we've done a couple and we had them wear masks. They were required to wear masks inside, um, but not outside. We tried to make it a, mostly outdoor event um which gotcha now in texas is getting harder to do uh with the summer (laughs) oh yeah definitely um and yeah i mean from my perspective too uh i'm 100 percent mask all you know i have the 3m spray paint respirator situation going on but i also have you know the full selection because i'm i'm a nerd like that (laughs) um but it's definitely um a chore to wear a mask for eight to 10 hours a day, especially if you're uh, in what you consider to be like your workplace mm-hmm. um, with like a limited number of other people. So it, how is that? You, you mentioned some events, some tours, some indoors, some outdoors is the, is the majority of your policy decision-making surrounding the limited cohort that you've got coming in every single day. So you're almost like a bubble or. Yeah. A lot of it is uh, based on feeling like we're in a bubble. And that's why I think for, we made that decision for on a day-to-day basis, we just have members coming in, you know? So when we have tours, that's a little different and you kind of like see, you know, like I said, who's comfortable with masking or not masking. Um, mm-hmm. But yes, it, it feels like we're in a bubble. Um, some of it's based on CDC guidelines, the latest CDC guidelines. You know, I know some places were like, oh, CDC says we don't have to wear masks anymore if we're vaccinated. And like a lot of people just took them off right away. And mm-hmm. we weren't quite ready to do that. But I think, so we, it's a combination of things. We look at who's in the room um what the latest guidelines are uh you know we have four staff members and we're all vaccinated and so we we always check in with each other too like before we make any kind of change you know on how everybody's feeling and we try to do that with our members too and we could tell overall at least with the cohort and the people who come in the most that they were, you know, we've talked to them about being vaccinated and we've talked to them about um, how they're feeling and, um, and they all, they've all felt comfortable. So I don't know. It's tricky. You know, I think 
I changed, we changed this policy on Monday. <laughs> Two mm. people yesterday make a comment in meetings that, well, we're going to have to put these back on soon because of this variant. And I'm right. like, I mean, I'm ready to make any changes that we need to, <laughs> but hoping that that's not the case. So. It does seem like uh, kind of the, the flexibility and, and rapid response um, mm-hmm. seem to be the kind of vibe here, you know, like you're, you're sword fighting this virus and you can't, you can't do halfway, but you also can't do the wrong thing at the wrong time. So we're just kind of like dodging around. Um, right. I definitely know that, uh, you know, there were times where, cause uh, Chimera is not really a cohort base. Um, and so we'd kind of have just random people who were like, I want to co-work. And I'm like, is co-working an essential activity? I don't know. Okay. We're figuring it out. But, um, you know, so I'd, I'd be working on my laptop and a stranger would be on his laptop two tables away. And we kind of adjusted the tables and had the windows open when we could, you know, to maybe distance a little bit. Um, but I'd still be in that conundrum where I'm just like, Hey buddy, you want to put on your mask because i don't know you and you know yeah um and at the same time uh you know i myself uh (laughs) limited my exposure to going into the 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 space um because uh it was just uncomfortable either way i did it so Mm -hmm. um do you guys are you guys thinking about or or uh moving towards the direction of like asking people their vaccination status or wanting to see their cards or is it kind of the honor system? That's gotten a little bit more tricky in Texas with our governor. Um, (laughs) uh, I believe we still legally can do that if we wanted to. Um, Mm -hmm. So far, most people have just volunteered that information to us. Mm -hmm. Um, So at least at the moment it hasn't been necessary. And we've, uh, we just, to, to, to be a little bit blunt, we haven't grown that much over the past year. So gotcha. um, the, the amount of people that we brought into the cohort has been pretty small, um, which at least we're not losing people. Um, and we are still growing, but slowly. Yeah. So and I was so going to ask at least about at the that. moment. It, it hasn't been that much of a priority, but I guess that, that probably is something that we should talk about um, in the future. Right. Right. We're, we're just with just changing this policy on Monday. It's kind of an experiment. Like you said, I mean, uh, before then it really wasn't, didn't have to be a question because everybody was required to wear masks. So for sure. Um, so I think we're just, we'll play it by ear with, with the tours and new members. Um, yeah. Yeah. I only ask cause it's the, the topic of the day, right? So hard hitting interview questions over here. Um, we have a little bit of a benefit because of the way that our space is structured and that most of the people, the vast majority of people who work out of the space have their own studio. Mm. Um, and so they are just sort of physically distanced just by the fact that everyone's in their own spot. Gotcha. Um, so you don't even really need to separate out tables and chairs because everybody's already got their own kind of cubicle room situation. Yeah. And then we're also using a, um, a co-working software. I don't know if we're supposed to talk about specific brand names or not, but. Oh yeah. You mentioned that you use uh, proximity's booking feature, I think. Yeah. So we've been using proximity since the beginning of the pandemic to basically set room sizes. And then Hmm. in order to be in the space, they have to reserve. Um, and so we, we can basically set room by room throughout the space where if someone wants to book the fab lab, they're the only person in there. Um, or any of like the computer labs, or if they want to use the 3D printer or the wood shop. Now, do you um, guys have, um, do you have staff that's kind of upfront during operating hours that would be able to say, hey, you're not able to come in right now because you haven't booked this? Or is that also on the honor system? Or is it like tightly integrated into RFID where you like physically can't? Um, so we don't have any like physical prevention through the card system. Mm-hmm. Uh, annoyingly, we, we installed our card system before we got proximity. Um, yeah. if we had done so afterwards, we could have integrated them a bit better, but they don't, um, our RFID system isn't compatible with proximity. Gotcha. Um, so at the moment we do have staff here every day, um, including on Saturdays, uh, Sunday Great. is the only day that we currently aren't staffed. And so at least from nine to five, which is when most people are in the space. Um, other than our few night owls, um, right. we can do a pretty easy job of making sure that people aren't double booking 
yeah. than that they are booking. Um, and so um, I don't, I can only think of it a, a couple times um, over the past, since we last talked, that we've had people double book or that have showed up and didn't uh, reserve a space. Sure. So at least for the size of um, the group that we have, um, it hasn't been that much of an issue. And we've just been clear in communicating to the, the group, that, to all the members, that the importance of signing up before they come out. And it saves them time, too, because if they yeah. show up and someone else is already using the table saw and they just drove 30 minutes to get down here, now they can't use it. Like The worst, It yeah. saves them time, yeah. So I wanted to ask about that cohort. Um how big is it, first of all, but also the the June 2020 cohort through now, kind of what's that story? What was their experience? Yeah, so um, our cohort is sort of the core of the art incubator concept behind the Cedars Union. Um, it's a juried process, so they submit 10 works of, of art, a CV, and a letter of intent. Um, we're actually about to open applications for our third cohort. Um, and they'll be entering the space in January. And we have had, I mean, to be honest, it, it has been a lot different for cohort two compared to cohort three. I mean, compared to cohort one, our yeah. first cohort. Um, and we've tried to do the best that we can to su- sort of supply the same experience that cohort one had. But just with the, the limitations on the space and inability to do as many in-person events, it, it has been difficult to do that. But mm-hmm. they still seem to be really happy with the experience that they've had here. And um, so that's been exciting to see the sort of uh, growth that they've had in their career since they've been here. Yeah. Um, so we currently, the the actual cohort is 15 members and that's how many studios that we have in the back. Um, mm-hmm. Also over the summer, I believe since the last time we talked, um, we started an art and equity scholarship that's awesome. And so we also added three uh, additional artists of color um, that started. Uh, Rachel, do you remember the when they started? Oh, gosh. You know, it's so funny. The pandemic really was a big blur. I think it was toward the end of, I want to say it was like December 1 um, or November, somewhere around the end of the year last year. So. Cool. Yeah, and so we've we've basically um, set aside one of the extra studios that we had, and um, supplied that uh, free of charge for those artists. That's awesome. And um, they get the full eighteen months as well. And so from now on, we'll have those three spots, and it'll it'll I think in the future it's going to be one studio space and then two funded community memberships. Nice. Um, we just so happened to have an extra studio this time, so all of them got studio space. Um, and so uh, moving forward, it'll just be part of the application process where when they're applying, we use SlideRoom to do our applications. And so when they're applying on SlideRoom with this new cohort three, um, if you'd like to apply to have an opportunity for that scholarship, you basically just click a box. Um, That's awesome. And then it'll all just be completely included um, and so, yeah, that's been so literally exciting. your, your scholarship application is like, Hey, by the way, click this box. If you want to be eligible for the diversity inclusion scholarship. Yep, exactly. Pretty much. Yeah. There's, we, we thought about keeping them separate, but then, uh, we decided to just put them together, especially since it'd be in the timeline and it keeps them from having to apply twice, you know, sure. like, like I would love to get a scholarship, but if I don't get a scholarship, then, you know, we'd want them to have the opportunity to, uh, you know, pay to, to be in the regular cohort. So, um, sure. so it really is kind of like a convenience for our jury and for um, people who apply was, was the goal. Yeah. Uh, that's a good segue. Um, Cause uh, last time we talked, I was bringing up cause it was, you know, June, July, uh, 2020. And, um, so I was bringing up that, uh, in response to the black lives matter stuff, we were trying to do a scholarship of our own as well. And, um, I had some initial success, like with, with that, uh, I, uh, did some outreach to some community members, um, that I met like over Instagram, you know, that, that were just kind of active locally. 
and um, they had just a great time. Uh, uh, they wanted to sign up for our welding class. And so it was, I think, two or three um, people who knew each other, friends that, that took that class together. Um, but unfortunately, the way I did it, I got some friction from like the rest of the, you know, the, the people involved that, that were kind of like co-decision makers. I didn't very clearly communicate like this is what I'm doing. Um, cause up till then I had kind of like a wide range and then, um, with shaking up the board and shaking up how we were doing classes and everything, I wasn't fully communicating with that. And so uh, that kind of injected some friction into the process. And, um, I'm not sure if we're really going to end up doing much of that anymore. Unfortunately, I, I'm actually no longer, uh, with Chimera just because I moved up to Salem and the pandemic was so insane. Um, mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, some lessons learned from that, that, um, I really have to not just get people to say yes, but really kind of go through the process with me and, and buy into whatever yeah. it is that we're promising people. Cause, um, it's really easy to make waves and, uh, make people upset if yeah. kind of your, yeah, um, not meeting your promises or not clearly communicating. Yeah, it's a it's definitely collaborative. Um, I mean, I'm, I wouldn't say that we've done things perfectly, uh, but and it's I feel like um, diversity, equity, and inclusion is is always a process um, that is not necessarily going to be a, a quick thing. That was the first thing that one of the first things that we started, but we have a broader arts and equity initiative that mm-hmm. um, we tried to be really uh, communicative with the whole board about from the beginning. And uh, we did things like um, some training with the board, a training session. That's with, cool. Um, with a DEI uh, teacher trainer. And that was, I mean, that, that was a little bit difficult. Yeah, that was that was hard to because everybody's kind of got different. You know, you're getting a little vulnerable with people and talking Absolutely. about you know things, but it was good. Um, it it helped us to to talk about it, not be afraid of that, and we've um, since made some other changes and continue to grow our board, um, board diversity, and uh, just some different like smaller things that really affect the bigger ecosystem, you know, like how are we, how are these questions in the application being worded and Mm -hmm. who are we not reaching out to, you know, or who, who, or what neighborhoods are we not in, you know, things like that. that, Exactly. um, It's just uh, something we're in it we're in it for the long haul and understanding that. Um, yeah. I think one yeah. thing that tripped me up was that I was kind of going through some of those processes, but it sounds like at one tenth of the scale that you were able to. And so I was kind of doing it all in my own head with my friends and the people around me. And I don't have a DEI expert to call in and, you know, have a little thing with. And so I was just kind of like, um, <laughs> yeah, a little bit more making it up as we go along and, and without those resources available, uh, kind of stuttered and, and sputtered, uh, an unnecessary amount probably. Um, but on that note that you brought up, uh, up here in Salem, Oregon, uh, there's some people that are trying to make a maker space. They already have 501c3, but not a physical space. Mm-hmm. And, um, I was coming in kind of like, Hey, what's up? I've been running maker spaces for, a decade or two, uh, you know, how can I help? And, um, I ended up telling them like, if you can at all get a very diverse board and like founding initial group, um, I find that to be really huge because it's so much easier, I think, to do all that uncomfortable work up front and, uh, and adjust your kind of like starting position from the get go rather than trying to shoehorn it in five or 10 years down the line. Yeah. Sort of setting those expectations early, I think is helpful. Um, And the culture. Yeah. 
Exactly. Yeah, we, we got kind of lucky that our our initial mission and our values sort of aligned with this a bit, but it had always been done kind of, I don't really want to, well, it was kind of accidentally. Yeah. Our first cohort, we had great diversity in our first cohort, um, but it was, like I said, it, it just happened by accident. Um, we got mm-hmm. lucky. And so that was sort of the the core, one of the core tenants, I think, of our DAI initiative initially was to make that um, the, the luck into something that was intentional. Good. Um, yeah. I, I love, if you're able to actually do that, I love that because uh, it sometimes it doesn't happen so serendipitously and it's a real process, right? Yeah. And so we've made, uh, like Rachel mentioned, we've, we've made changes to the way our application system works. Um, we're going to make changes to the way that it's marketed and who we tell about it. Great. Um, and I guess if we talk again in the future, we'll, we'll, we'll let you know how it goes because that application is <laughs> going out here soon. And so we'll see um, if that's sort of reflected in the cohort um, that we form for cohort three. So Yeah. I was going to ask about, um, or I, I was going to mention, um, one of the other things that I've learned in the last year or so is we heard a lot about in like, let's say 2016, 2018, about like the term safe spaces. And I kind of understood that at like a, a, a distanced level, like a, like a hands-off, like conceptual level. But one of the things that I've um, delved into with trying to uh, help out with these kinds of, let's call it diversity inclusion, but you know, really it's um, having difficult conversations with people from different experiences um, is that for me to create a safe space where this person can ask difficult questions and not be immediately judged, I think there's a lot of, like you're saying, vulnerability and maybe fear where if this person can't ask, like, what about singular they pronouns uh, without immediately being, you know, judged for it, um, Mm -hmm. then we're not going to be able to have that conversation. But I've been more conscious over the last couple of years about um, trying to intentionally say, Hey, this, this conversation that we're having right now, whatever, there's no dumb questions or whatever I can say to, to uh, relieve them of that anxiety so that um, they can ask that blunt, non-politically correct version of whatever's going on in their mind. And then I can walk them through it and we can come out to the conversation uh, in, into a better place. Right. Absolutely. I think there's so much more of that that within our organization that I want to have and we we welcome it. Um, But it is tough to, you know, for me, I think it's easier one on one in some ways, but trying to facilitate things, conversations again with, I think, of the board and our staff can be a little more challenging um, because I think people do feel reluctant to say things, especially in groups, but. um, Yeah. There's a kind of a semi-public situation that we often have going on, whether it's in an organization or on Facebook where one-on-one really makes a difference. And I learned that in um, running makerspaces in in Phoenix. Uh, Mm It reminds me of this old like schoolhouse rock lesson from like uh, like lawyers or whatever. I don't know. It's not, it's not schoolhouse rock. It's one of those old cartoons. But mm-hmm. it was basically like the lawyer doesn't ask questions that he doesn't already know the answer to. You don't go right. and start the whole group session. You don't have the big vote unless you've already done the legwork of going to each individual as much as possible. And one-on-one doing that legwork so that hopefully you've kind of canvassed everybody and, and gotten more or less on the same page so that the group session can hopefully be more productive. That's right. And I think, I think if we have had any of that pushback um, or I, I can't even really think that we have had that much, but I think it's, it's part of being an artistic space that perhaps artists are just a bit more used to, um, like environments like being in creative critique sure um where they're they're used to having that safe space to talk about their work and talk about the the feelings that went into that work um and so i think maybe people just like come in 
with a bit more of a skill set um, that they have access to as artists to do that. Um, and I know that that's been something we've done several sessions of doing critique sessions. Um, and it, it actually has been more difficult to do those uh, online versus in person. Um, and we've noticed that. And so when you're, when you're in person doing a critique, it's a lot easier to sort of read the, the feeling of the room and to like pick up on some of the other more subtle things that you might not when you're just sitting in front of a zoom screen. Um, I was just dealing with, um, I'm barely involved in, in any makerspace at this precise moment, but I was in the Slack channel for um, Heatsink and Phoenix and, uh, and there was some friction there precisely because I think Heatsink works best when you're doing a whole bunch of face-to-face uh, discussion, like community building. And you're right, it's just so easy over text or over video um, for uh, intention and context and tone and stuff to be absent or misread or misinterpreted um, and, and to not work nearly as efficiently uh, in, that, in that way. Yeah, so I guess of, of all of our programming, um, that's probably the one thing that that did suffer a bit is doing the critiques. Um, mm. But we're starting to figure out how to do those in person again. Um, yeah, we had our first one. Yeah, and I, I think it was a bit more successful than the previous ones that we've had over the past few months. Um, there was a cohesiveness, you know, and everybody was excited to be there. And when you see art in person instead of on a screen, also, it's much <laughs> yeah. Um, We've also, at our particular space, um, one of our values is to protect artists' creative expression. So we've always mm -hmm. had that as sort of a, a prime value that artists that are in our space are free to do whatever they want um, when it comes to making their art, as long as they're not uh, harmfully affecting someone else in the space. Yeah. Uh, um, at at so, Heatsink, yeah. we called that uh, don't people, don't, don't tell people not to make things. Um, Exactly. It's super easy in the kind of like nerdy techie way or even woodworking, metalworking way to for an expert to come in and say, don't do it that way. You know, this isn't right. Uh, but sometimes people just need to learn their own process and try new things and, and uh, fail in their own way and learn from that. Yeah. The only time that we really step in, I think, is if like safety is involved. Like if I walk into the wood shop and someone's doing something that looks like it might hurt them, um, I'll, of course, step in. But um, if they're building a frame and I don't think they're building it correctly, um, I might offer a tip, but I'm not going to stop them from doing it the way that they yeah, want to do it. That was actually a big deal um, for us back in normal times when I'm running a normal makerspace. Um, you know, the the kind of urge to like hover or nitpick or critique or whatever when yes. know, somebody's going on their own process. And as long as they don't burn anything down, it's kind of okay. Um, exactly. I think I, for for me, um, I can't I can't remember if I had already done this um, after our previous talk, but I've I've switched from executive director to creative director. Oh, cool! And I've tried to um, have a bit more focus on one on one with the artists and helping them with projects. And it's been I think that's huge. Yeah, it's been um, <laughs> difficult at times to make sure that I separate their work from the work that I perceive as my work yeah, um, and to make sure that I'm here to help them, but not to do their work and not to come up with ideas for them. So. And you've actually got a big benefit um, at Chimera and in uh, at, at Heatsink Labs. Uh, we don't really have cohorts. And so it could literally be anybody. Somebody could take a woodworking sign off class on Thursday and come in on Friday or Saturday and make a huge mess. And our opportunity to have that one-on-one -on -one time is really limited. But um, that was my answer too. Actually, was uh, with with a teacher like a wood or metal teacher, um, doing doing our best to create a sense of camaraderie where that person can be um, uh, a resource and people feel comfortable going to that person and not really judged. And it's just a really fine line to walk. Like you know, the the tone and intent and body language in saying like, hey do you need help with that? Or can I help you with that? Or do you want a tip? Like it's really easy, especially if you're an old man and you're talking to a young woman, the dynamics can really easily be just like, let me show you how to do that young lady. And it's just like downhill from there. Yep. So yeah, I think that's a, a huge benefit of our sort of cohort system is that 
for a year and a half were really embedded with these people um, day to day. We see the same group of people almost every day um, that at least on the days that I'm here working in person. That's great. And, um, and even our community members, which aren't necessarily here as often, but they've been fairly stable as well. Um, and so being able to sort of develop that rapport with people and the trust that they have um, and sort of figuring out who knows what to do what and figuring out like who you can go to if I have an issue with the, the vinyl cutter or yeah. um, if I want to learn how to do something with woodworking. Um, after a few months, people really start to figure out like who to go to in the cohort and who they can lean on. And that's been, it's, it's a really cool part of our community. That's great. There's a lot of uh, reasons why it's really beneficial for us to have this membership process where people have to go through training. You know, they have to go through this woodshop training. They have to make a commitment of at least one month or six months. It's yeah. a bit challenging in some ways. You know, we ride a line where, you know, we're still figuring out how to do these sort of public workshops and things like that. Um, right. But, but yeah, like, like Matt said, it's, it's really uh, creates this, this real community of people instead of just kind of having guests, you know, yeah. random people. And it's, and it's been a big financial decision as well to stick to that because yeah. we, we are, you know, we, we know we're losing out on um, income that we could be having from having additional members that are just drop in daily members, more like a standard co-working space. Yeah. Um, and that's something that we go back and forth on a lot. Um, and we're, especially now, I mean, I, this is probably true for every makerspace, but times are tight and um, we've been looking for ways to sort of increase funding. And so, you know, we've talked about it. Um, and here and there we've made sort of small exceptions for, you know, members who the previous month just dropped their membership and then they see a program that they really want to come to. We're like, well, you're not a member. So a few times we've let people do day passes. Um, mm -hmm. it's, it's definitely something that we're, we're still thinking about, but yeah. at least for now, while we're still dealing with the pandemic, um, it's been, uh, really helpful to be able to sort of really control who's in the space and, um, make right. sure that the people who are in the space feel safe while they're here. Um, yeah. and that they know that we're as a staff that we're looking out for them. Um, I was going to ask, um, when, so what, what balance of uh, income are you getting from cohort people versus, uh, community members or drop-ins or any other, you were, you were kind of talking about business model and, um, last time Rachel was asking about membership tiers. So are you currently, let me guess, doing like 80% of uh, your business through the cohort people and a little bit of maybe like community membership afterwards or? Yeah, so the, the cohort basically comes in for the full 18 months. So that's a, I mean, basically as soon as the cohort gets locked in, um, we have a, a fairly easy to predict income stream coming from those studios. Yeah. Um, and so that's sort of like the core. Um, it's still not a significant portion of our budget just based on the square footage of our space. Um, and that's something that like moving forward as an organization at some point, if we're going to continue with this goal of trying to be self-sustainable just off of the, the people who are here, um, we're going to need a larger space eventually. Um, <laughs> for now, as a 501c3, we're, we're still doing you know, traditional development and uh, fundraising and grant making. And that's uh, really where the majority of the income for continuing the project comes from. Um, gotcha. But the cohort, that's pretty much always limited by our square footage and limited by the fact that we have 15 studios or currently, I guess, 17, because we had one split in half. And so there's always just going to be that that set amount of income that we're able to raise off of those studios. Um, and then, so in the future, our community membership is the, really the thing that's, that's scalable about the project. And so that's really where we've uh, pushed our focus um, on a day-to-day -day basis. Of course, the cohort still kind of comes first, um, but as far as like marketing and outreach to new people, um, growing, the community membership and growing those people until we really feel like we filled out the space 
Um, currently, we're, we still don't really struggle with people like double booking or like not having access to tools because there's someone else already working on it. Um, so once we get to that point, I think we'll sort of make the decision of like, okay, this is this is how many members feels like we can fill this space. Um, and then from there, we're going to need to start talking about having a larger space. Yeah. Um, but yeah we're not we there have, yet. Um, we have currently just to throw the numbers with the community membership too, we have about 17. So we actually are about like 50, 50 membership wise gotcha. um, between the two. Um, but the cohort members do pay more for their own dedicated space. So on top of growing in our space for community memberships, we've talked about having uh, a larger space to have more permanent studios so that we could essentially charge more for, um, you know, and they would look more like regular studios. I know it's hard to describe on a podcast, but our current studios have uh, no doors and low walls and they're very open. So um, those are all just goals for expansion. Um, But yeah, right now, right now we're pretty even with the two types of memberships. All right. Um, and last time we were chatting, you were talking about currently being in an annex and talking about a new larger historical building and maybe using the roof of that building. How did that all pan out? Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I have to laugh. <laughs> um, well, uh, t- t- to put it succinctly, it didn't. Um, we yeah. still, the parent organization that is our that gave us the seed money for this project uh, still owns that building. Um, and we are still working on it. Um, I, I mentioned sort of in the, the, when we were talking before we started recording, um, I was over there or have been, uh, and all of our staff has been over there sort of working on that building and getting cleaned up. Uh, we, we used to office out of that space. Um, Dallas had a big ice storm on top of the pandemic, um, where basically the whole state froze. I'm sure a lot of people heard about it. Um, we had a massive, uh, water break and it flooded our offices and, uh, did a lot of damage to the building. Oh no. Um, and so we are still sort of in recovery from that. And on top of that, uh, we spent about a year and a half. I, I don't know how much of this we talked about in the previous uh, podcast, but um, sort of developing a relationship uh, and talking to different developers. And our plan was to do a sale lease back on that building mm. um, during the uh, sort of as a result of the pandemic and some other extenuating circumstances dealing with historic tax credits, uh, that deal ended up not working out, um, which was a pretty huge disappointment um, because we were in essence going to be able to have our full sort of dream space uh, paid for by someone else, <laughs> Yeah, um, which would have been a really great deal for us. Initially, yeah. <laughs> yeah, initially. Um, and then we would have been, you know, renting it back. And like you said, our plan was to have an event space on the roof that would have had some really great views of downtown Dallas. And that would have been sort of the the primary income generator for the, pro- the whole project. And over time, uh, we believe would have paid for the whole project itself um, and sort of made the whole space revenue neutral or even uh, revenue positive. Yeah. And um, so that was sort of the dream. Um, you can imagine that event space uh, over the past year has not uh, done great. Uh, that industry is recovering now, but our, our real problem was with some uh, issues with some historic tax credits here in Texas. Mm. Um, that was a significant portion of the budget for the project. The, the Bodecker building is a historic building here uh, just south of downtown Dallas. And as part of the, the process of building out the new uh, space for the Cedars Union. We were also going to be doing historic preservation on that building, yeah. uh, like a complete rebuilding of the facade, the external facade, and everything else. Um, it ended up being that we weren't able to secure those tax credits when we were uh, pretty previous to that. We were pretty confident that we were going to, and so all of a sudden, you know, thirty percent of our budget evaporated, and we weren't able to find a way of making that up. So exactly. Um, that that big sort of project uh, kind of died on the vine, but we are still moving forward with trying to uh, sort of instead of doing this sort of big, giant all-in-one build-out of a you know huge multi-million-dollar project, we're going to try and do it more grassroots and uh, through a capital campaign 
And um, we're still sort of in the process now of figuring out if that's the right direction for the Cedars Union to go. Now that um, that sort of big uh, uh, project has uh, passed us by. And so we're, we're working right now to try and figure out sort of what's the next best step. Um, does the Bodecker um, still look like the future home of the CU? Um, or are we going to look for something uh, different? Um, and so that's been a, a huge, uh, it, it certainly takes up a lot of my time. <laughs> and, uh, but at least in the, for the time being, we are still using the space and we're going to be using it for large events. Um, we have a, a big event uh, coming up hopefully here in the fall. And we're getting that space sort of cleaned up from that water damage and uh, trying to make more of that building available for our artists now. Um, in its current state. Um, and so we're looking at things that don't take a whole lot of investment up front, but then have a bit more return long-term. Um, and so uh, currently the, the building is zoned as like a warehouse space. And so with that, we can do things like welding and fabrication. And that's something that we really haven't been able to do in our current space, uh, the annex. Gotcha. Um, and so having the Bodecker be available for sort of large events, um, and then also a space for artists to work on sort of more messy projects, more industrial projects, and also just projects that take up a lot more room. It's um, just on the first floor alone, we have almost 15,000 square feet with 32 foot ceilings and big roll up, you know, 12 foot roll up doors. So if artists need to work on much larger scale pieces like installation work or uh, projection uh, stuff or big large scale sculpture, we'll have... Uh, hopefully here soon, uh, we'll have a space for that. That's great. So, um, yeah, I hate to use the, the P word, the pivot word, but we're trying to find <laughs> new ways that we can utilize that space and uh, sure. make it work for our mission while not uh, hurting our mission by getting sort of in the, too much in the weeds of trying to turn an art incubator into a historic preservation building uh, repair <laughs> uh, nonprofit, <laughs> which isn't what we are. So right. um, I think especially for me, that's been difficult. Um, when you have access to this beautiful historic building, it becomes very uh, easily uh, or easy to become sort of obsessed about it. Um, and so <laughs> I know I personally, that. I've had to take a, a bit of a step back on that and make sure that we're doing what's best for the CU. Gotcha. Right. Thankfully, we've got a, a board member too, pretty new board member that's uh, in the architecture world. And so she's been helping us get to the point where we can, on our own, get some estimates of what it might look like for, like Matt was describing, our uh, sort of minimal uh, updates to get that space up, up and running. And then, yeah, and then we make the decision of, is this right for us or is it something we, we have to move on from? But um, I do feel for uh, Matt and how he's sort of got that personal history with the building and, and how difficult and frustrating it is to, to see it go through all this with the, the deals not working out. And, and kind sure, of going yeah. back to the drawing board. It's, it's, it's kind of an emotional experience though. Yeah, I've um, a, a number of uh, things I've been involved in are, are definitely either using historical buildings or uh, trying to renovate historical buildings, and it's kind of um, a random chance if it ends up working out um, or if something else ends up happening for sure. Definitely. Um, I was going to ask about uh, the kind of like runway of seed money that you guys were having and starting out with. Are you still um, using that or relying on that, or has has most of your um, funding source changed? That's such a timely question. <laughs> <laughs> um, we uh, Matt might want to speak more to this, but we are currently using um, the more of it than we we want to, and we're discussing with um, the the parent foundation who, how much longer we'll have and how we can best utilize that. Um, the challenge I think is where does that, 
that's the big decision with the big building is is do we put all of our eggs or the funding that's left into that or do we you know find find other ways to like will we be more sustainable long term by just either we're finding another building or sticking to this smaller building we have so um, we are we are looking at a hopefully and i'm saying this totally that we haven't had this meeting yet but um hopefully looking at sort of a phased out approach uh gotcha so so next year's budget will look different than this year's budget i do know that yeah and um since we opened our space in the annex so basically since we've been um a physical space not just a 501c um with a board yeah um we have grown our grant making every year um, and we've grown our uh, fundraising as well um, but still not to the level that we want um, and we're still hopeful that we can get more funding um, and so yeah sort of like rachel said we're we're sort of aware of how much runway we have um, and our parent organization has basically told us like we're free to spend that money and so we can spend it either on a building or just uh, continuing doing what we're doing now um, but we know uh, in essence, how much is left. And so it's sort of now up to us to sort of make that decision or for the for the board uh, to make that decision on what they think is the best way to spend those funds. Um, and then also, you know, making sure that we're continuing to do additional development work uh, so that we have additional sources of income uh, to keep the project going. So. Gotcha. And for my part, um, Chimera is uh, almost entirely self-funded um, from memberships and, and teaching classes. I can't think of any money that we get that's not that. Um, and uh, I think even Heatsink Labs also had a big nest egg going into the pandemic. Fortunately, uh, has has maintained that or even um, uh, built that up. I'm not sure. Uh, definitely not exhausted it. But I know that um, Chimera would not uh, be around right now if not for some a, a good relationship with the landlord and some really generous um, flexibility on the landlord's behalf. So, um, yeah, without the without the runway, sometimes it's still doable. It seems like, but uh, highly kind of case by case because uh, yeah, the sister space I was talking about, One Eighty Studios in Santa Rosa. Um, as far as I can tell, is is uh, defunct, and I imagine that their equipment's going to get uh, sold off or, or moved or something, because um, uh, it just the, the numbers didn't work out uh, for them for whatever reason. Yeah, so we got uh, pretty lucky that basically our budget had already been set for the previous year, and that we already had um, sort of funding for 2020, um, and so that that really helped us get through. Um, we also got PVP funds. Um, nice. which helped us out uh, a huge amount. Yeah, um, we were looking at that. Either we didn't get approved or we didn't have any paid employees, I think was the big deal with that one. That might have been it, yeah. Yeah. Um, one thing, because uh, we're coming up on uh, time here, um, last time we were kind of talking about brain drain and you know San Francisco and LA being kind of the real big pie in the sky for a lot of people. Uh, do you think that's still being a, a thing or do you think people are maybe readjusting and considering places like Dallas or more suburban rural places to be um, kind of just fine? Yeah, I, I like to think that um, we've made some progress on that front. I don't I don't know how much that <laughs> us as a yeah, small organization can uh, take credit for it. But there definitely does, especially over the pandemic, seem to have been a pretty big swing in people trying to sort of... Um, move away from those big cities and right. Dallas is still a, even though the housing market here is just as crazy as it probably is everywhere else. Um, you know, it, it's still a, a much more inexpensive place to live than New York or LA, um, or a lot of the other sort of art hubs or perceived art hubs, uh, in the USA. So, uh, that's always been a core part of our mission that we want to try and, and sort of the vision for the CU is that we want to make Dallas, um, seen as sort of an international hub for art and that when we have such incredible artists here and such great art schools that people see it as a place that they can stay and have a successful art career and don't feel like in order to be successful that they have to move somewhere else. 
So yeah, that's what we're yeah, trying to support I think, here. <laughs> I think we're really, we really are, whether we like it or not, we're, we're really kind of somewhat reliant on, uh, one is our like art schools here, like Matt mm-hmm. mentioned, and just the, the overall arts culture and, and the culture of Dallas at times can be, can be challenging. You know, I think I have a love for it because I say there's, there's great pockets of Dallas and there are, there's lots of artistic communities, but um, I think as far as like the overall, I mean, you could tell us, but like, what do people, when they hear Dallas, what do they think of? You know, they, do they think of uh, cowboy hats and businesses or, or do they think of, you know, artistic things happening? So, you know, but, but that, that's all to say that like, we do enjoy the business aspect because it makes it a great place to live. The economy is better, you know, things like that. So um, I do think that there's, there's still a lot more potential and we are making, as far as the organization goes, uh, we are very passionate about that, like Matt said. And um, we hope to continue to influence artists in that way to make them feel like they have a safe place, like they have a, a community to be a part of and they don't have to go, you know, move to LA or San Francisco, that they can stay here and be supported. Sure. I think some of that is maybe just like the, the cultural no- notoriety, you know, where uh, you think of New York and you think of uh, Broadway and Statue of Liberty, you think of San Francisco, you think the Golden Gate Bridge and Haight-Ashbury, you think of Seattle, you think of Nirvana. Um, yeah. And so really it's just like, did, you know, did Phoenix spawn anybody that you can particularly think of or did Dallas? Um, not that, you know, and I've lived close enough to some of these cities where um, I don't think that there's necessarily anything fundamentally wrong with any of them. There's some amazing art centers and art communities and pockets like you're talking about in so many of these places and plenty of boring high rises too. Among all <laughs> them. Yeah. Um, we got plenty of those. <laughs> and, and it's just, you know, wh- which one of them broke through and, you know, Phoenix is always like Bill and Ted's excellent adventure was filmed there. And I think, um, there's some like maybe punk bands or rock bands that are from there, stuff like that. Uh, so, you know, maybe you have your cultural moment. Um, but, uh, I don't think there's any real good solid reason to feel, um, uh, anxious about your place in the world other than maybe just the raw amount of money that's available for theater and broad in uh, New York city or whatever. Um, and what I've noticed, uh, you know, with myself trying to, kind of be here in Salem and, and these other like smaller cities is that, um, yeah, you know, some people just don't really, they, they might show up in San Francisco to be part of this big giant, you know, urban experience. Um, but at the end of the day, a whole bunch of those tech workers, a whole bunch of the people that are living there would just as rather live in Idaho or, you know, wherever. Um, and so now that they have that opportunity, they're kind of doing that. Um, so yeah, maybe there'll be a little bit of a, a, a backswing or a leveling out. Yeah. You know, I thought about, I went to Austin recently and uh, was driving around and just thinking about how there are some, I would imagine having not started, tried to start an art organization in a place like Austin, but I would imagine that there's also disadvantages to being in a place where there's so much competition. You know, there's already so many art organizations or makerspaces or whatever. And you're just like, okay, everyone's kind of, you know, already doing this. Or there's just, uh, you feel like you're competing with all these other organizations. Whereas for us, like, I feel like we can really say there's nowhere else like us in Dallas. You know, like we have the Dallas makerspace, but we're they're not focused on artists, you know, um, there's there's still some room to do something interesting. Yeah. So I I think we're proud of that, that like there's a need there. We really feel strongly that there is a need for us in Dallas. Great. 
Um, cool. Well, I mean, before we wrap up, um, is there anything left on that you guys were wondering about or topics you wanted to bring up? I don't know. I think we, we covered a lot of um, the things that we've been working on over the past year. So yeah, thanks for having us on again. Great. Yeah. Thanks for ch- chatting with you guys. Um, and I'm excited to see what the next year or two brings all of us. Thanks for listening. Please visit the website makerspacemanagers.com for resources and to subscribe to the next episode. And tell your fellow makerspace or hackerspace managing friends if you found this podcast helpful.